Are you offering your clients the experience they really want? Or are you offering them what you think they want? Join hosts Laura Gregg and David Partain from FlexShares Exchange Traded Funds as they talk with a variety of industry experts and advisors just like you about their latest industry research to help you develop the flexible mindset you need to rise above the crowd. Hello, and welcome to the Flexible Advisor Podcast. I'm Laura Gregg, and I am joined with my co-host, David Partain. How are you, David? Hello, Laura. Sounds like we have an old friend joining us today. (laughs) We sure do. Uh, On the Flexible Advisor, we seek to invite guests and friends that will provide unique insights and actionable ideas for advisors that want to fine-tune or grow their businesses while deepening client relationships. And our guest today is Mark Bruno. Mark has been a media leader in the advisory industry for two decades and has been reporting well on wealth management trends, directing industry research, and leading multimedia and in-person events over the years. He is a managing director of the wealth management group at Informa Connect, and Mark joined Informa in May of this year. And a little later, we're going to ask him to go and take a deeper dive on what his new role encompasses. Um, Mark is also a fellow podcaster and is the host of his own show titled RIA Edge. Uh, But prior to Informa, Mark was a managing director with Echelon Partners, which many of you probably know is a leading investment banking and consulting firm to the wealth and investment management industries. And while there, he specialized in helping wealth managers build strategic connections between people, performance, and profitability. He focused on valuation, organizational design, and assessment, compensation consulting, succession, and continuity solutions. Our listeners may also know Mark from his time at Investment News, where he launched their content strategy studio a dedicated marketing and custom content division. He also managed the investment news, uh, investment news research, which is where I had the opportunity to first work with Mark as a client. Uh, Mark, we are delighted to have you on the Flexible Advisor today. Laura, Dave, thank you both very much for having me on. I appreciate it, and it is nice to reconnect. You can't get rid of me, right? I, I think you've tried, right? But I'll keep coming back. We, we don't want to get rid of you, Mark. <laughs> I can tell you that. <laughs> Thank you again for having me. I appreciate it. Looking forward to the discussion. Mark, I have to start off by saying sorry for calling you an old friend. <laughs> it's, it's, it's getting more and more true I, every day. I, I meant it as a, an, it, my experienced friends, I guess I should say now. <laughs> hey, and congratulations on your new role at Informa Connect. Sounds great. Yeah, thank you very much. It's a nice opportunity to get back into media and events after you know a year and a half out. And I have to say, timing wasn't so bad uh, to be out of the event business. <laughs> but uh, it, it, there's just so much going on in the wealth management and the RIA space, in particular. Mm-hmm. Just seemed like an amazing opportunity to get back in and connect the dots between some of the events and the media properties that we have in Informa. Uh, that's that's great. Well, I'm guessing our listeners are familiar with wealthmanagement.com, but maybe less so with Informa Connect. So I'm hoping you can give us an overview of like the larger organization and then just as important, your your actual role within the organization. And I understand it was a role that they created especially for you, which doesn't surprise me. <laughs> 
That is true. Um, and thank you for giving me the opportunity to share a little bit about Informa. Informa is, in the US at least, maybe one of the largest companies in the world that very few people here may know. Um, we have roughly 11,000 employees globally. We're listed on the London Stock Exchange, one of the 100 largest publicly traded companies there. And Informa is the world's largest event company. Forma Connect is a conference and a media arm of the company. And we have a relatively large global finance business and the wealth management division part of that. And I joined because I have a passion for media, a passion for research, and a passion for events. But I see this amazing opportunity um, on the media side. We have wealthmanagement.com, trust in estates, wealth management real estate. And then on the event side, we run two very large events inside ETFs and Wealthstack. So just this ability to connect the dots between those properties seems like a great opportunity. I'm a builder at heart. But you know, interestingly, at Echelon, I spent a lot of my time working with larger RIA firms and getting the opportunity to see and hear how the leaders of those firms think and how they're structured. They're really thinking about their businesses in investment departments or investment tracks. Um, they're also thinking about technology, right? technology departments and tracks, client service, right? and then, of course, you know, the executive or leadership track. So I see this bizarre, <laughs> bizarrely convenient opportunity to build our business so that it looks a lot and feels a lot like the way a large RIA firm is functioning. Um, and we're getting closer bit by bit for sure. And we already have some great pieces to that puzzle. So a great opportunity, really good timing here with you know, the way the RIA channel has been growing, which we'll get into in some detail, um, but also a really great time, hopefully with everybody starting to get back to face-to-face -to, -face to really reboot and go to market with you know, a really strong offering and brand in the wealth management and RIA space. Okay. So it doesn't sound like you're very busy at all. And so I can see where you started a podcast. Well, why not? Because you, what, you had five minutes in your day, but congratulations on that. We know how much work a podcast can be, but I'm guessing you're like us and view it as something rewarding as well. So tell us a little bit about the podcast, your audience for the show, and some of the guests you've had on, and even the type of guests you're hoping to host in the future. Sure. I appreciate that. And I also appreciate how much your recognition you have for the work and the time that goes into <laughs> podcasting. Um, it's not as easy as it sounds if you're good at it, but I, the RIA Edge podcast was something that within just a few days of sitting in the seat at my new role here, I recognized that there was a real need for. Yeah, you know, I'd look at our media and our event properties. And I feel like there's an opportunity in between the two to have a much more personalized and direct conversation with the leaders of the largest RIA firms. Um, those are firms, for the most part, with $500 million in assets and up, uh, but more specifically with a billion dollars in assets and up. And they're the firms that have been growing the fastest over the last decade or so. And especially over the last two years for me at Echelon, getting the opportunity to work with many of these firms. I've seen the difference between the firms that are growing by default, um, where you know bull market is responsible for half or more of their growth over the last 10 years. And then I've seen the firms that have grown by design, right? Those are the firms that have been doing really thoughtful strategic M&A work, really thoughtful marketing and business development and have really brilliant client acquisition strategies in place. And I felt like those stories need to be told. Um, and there isn't necessarily a platform or an outlet for it right now. Um, so it's not news-based, but RIA Edge is talking you know, first and foremost to these largest RIA firms. We've had firms like Serity Partners. We've had Wealthspire on. 
And we'll have a number of other very large firms like Allworth, for example, that have been on the show since we launched just a few weeks back. And the goal is to really speak to those individuals about the levers that they pulled to grow intentionally, to grow by design and not by default. And we go deep. It's really narrow. It's a really specific audience that we're talking to. And we've really uncovered some very thoughtful and very different ways of thinking about growth. And we're hoping that RIA Edge, which starts as a podcast now, it will also be an event in February. Um, and will be a broader... Omni-channel is the new buzzword in media now. Um, an omni-channel offering um, for the RIA and the wealth management community. Uh, Mark, thanks for uh, cluing me in on omni-channel. I'm going to be using <laughs> that in the future to sound uh, very smart. So appreciate that. You know, I've had the pleasure of working with you over the years on both the research and the content side of things. And I have always been so impressed by your depth of industry knowledge. So I'm I'm really excited to tap that knowledge today and get a sense of some of the key trends that you're seeing in the wealth management space. Yeah, there is so much going on right now. So much going on. And I, it's almost like I don't know. <laughs> where to start sometimes, whether it's M&A, right? whether it's the organic growth and the marketing side and also on the human capital and the personnel side. So let's spin the wheel and you guys tell me where you want, <laughs> where you want to start. <laughs> Wonderful. Well, I, I would love actually to start uh, by talking about M&A activity. I mean, 2020 was, of course, a record-setting year for merger and acquisition activity in the advisory industry. And 2021, I believe, has been pretty hot as well. So, you know, I'd love to know whether you think after all of this um, momentum, are the valuations still making sense? And are you seeing some changes in the deal sizes getting done? Are they getting smaller as uh, more consolidation takes place or are they still fairly large deals? Yeah, they're, they're definitely large deals and getting larger. There's no question about that. You know, the M&A activity right now, as you look at, you mentioned 2020 was a record year. Um, well, so is 2019, right? And so we're, we're each of the years and the seven years before that. So it's not necessarily something that is just a, a flash right now. This is, if you look at the RIA channel in particular, this is how some of the most thoughtful and the most opportunistic firms are, are growing, right? You look at the demographics, of course, the advisor population is aging and there are a lot of independent advisors and business owners who are looking for an exit strategy or a succession strategy. And M&A has been one of the most common ways to solve for that. But the interesting development is you've seen if some of these firms, especially the ones that are the largest acquirers, a couple that I mentioned on my podcast earlier, that have private equity firms backing them have been doing more and more acquisition, of course, over the last several years. And there's a category of RIA firms right, that are not just consolidators or aggregators, um, they're really professional buyers, and their business model is not wholly dependent, but largely dependent on their ability to growth for acquisition. Once you get to a certain size, um, you know, acquiring a small firm doesn't move the needle as much, right? So these professional buyers, the more acquisitions they do, the larger the acquisitions get, and the larger they have to stay, right, to continue to grow at the same rate. So with that. I don't see the M&A activity slowing down significantly at all. Um, I do think there's a pretty good chance that we'll see 
another record year M&A activity in 2021. I also think the valuations, you could say that they're at an all-time high, and that would be true. I think one of the things that doesn't get discussed often is the deal structure. And a lot of the reasons that the valuations are as high as they are right now is because it's based on whether or not the firm that is getting acquired ultimately performs over the next year, two, three, or you know, five years. If they can hit some of those growth targets, then the valuations in some cases could be astronomical. If not, obviously the buyer is protected, right? So there's some risk management there. I still think that the the valuations are very, very reasonable, mainly because of the growth in the RA industry. It's hard to find industries that are growing at the same rate. And if you really think about you know where the RIA channel is now relative to where it was 10 or 20 years ago, there's still a tremendous amount of growth potential, especially considering how limited um, or how small the population of individuals who are actually using financial advisors really is, right? There are millions of other potential clients out there. Um, so I don't see the MA activity slowing down. I don't see the valuations declining anytime soon for high quality firms just because they are in relatively short supply. Um, and I, I, I do see the deal structure evolving, but it'll be interesting to observe how some of these companies post-acquisition can expand their footprints and their services so they can start doing more business with more clients, right? And obviously expand the reach of just and access to financial advice in general. Yeah, that will certainly be interesting to watch. And I'd, I'd love to continue on this theme of M&A, but discuss it at a kind of at a, at a different level. You know, in the last few years, We've seen uh, the TD Ameritrade Schwab merger, the acquisition of Weddell and Reed by LPL, and of course Morgan Stanley's purchase of E-Trade. I'm curious, you know, do you think we'll continue to see more mega deals like that, even outside the the R- traditional RIA firm space? And if so, what types of firms are we most likely uh, to see being acquired? In your opinion, it's a really good question. I would just say. The 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 data guy in me naturally feels like we will see more mega deals, but we can't see that many more mega deals because with each one there are fewer and fewer mega firms, right? So I do think that we'll see more consolidation. Uh, I do think we'll see some in the broker dealer industry in particular. Um, at a certain point, you really have to have a certain level of scale, right, for the economics to make sense. So for some of the su- the smaller or mid sized broker dealers. Um, I, I would see them as you know, acquisition targets for some of the larger broker dealers or even you know, the private equity companies that would be looking to acquire multiple broker dealers and potentially roll them up into one. Um, you know, asset management, as you know, we've seen some you know, mega deals over the last couple of years, and it's largely, again, a scale play. Um, and also, I think in some cases, you've seen a, a number of asset managers, including Northern, that are doing acquisitions of you know, technology companies, right? So this convergence between asset management and you know, fintech, which we can talk more about, is another huge mega trend you know, that I don't see slowing down anytime soon. That's one of the most interesting developments in the space. So you know, for me, you know, those would be the two categories that I would expect to see the most sort of consolidation, or at least you know, among the largest firms that are in the asset management and wealth management and wealth tech segments. Well, Mark, as you just mentioned, uh, Northern Trust did purchase a digital advice company a couple of years ago called Emotomy. And it's, of course, a digital platform for advisors that offers the ability to efficiently offer clients personalized portfolios 
Other asset managers have made investments in hybrid digital platforms as well and are selling advice directly to consumers along with other advisors. And some have even invested in pure B2C digital advice companies. So Mm -hmm. I'm curious about what you're hearing from advisors about these platforms. Do they feel like there's a conflict of interest in using a platform that is also selling directly to consumers? Or have they just gotten used to that with the custodians they deal with like Charles Schwab and Fidelity? Yeah, I think it's a good question. And I think there are so many different models um, that there's no one answer to that question. My personal belief is the more access individuals can have to financial advice or planning tools, whether it's in-person, right, human advice or digital advice or hybrid for that matter, you know, the better it is for the wealth management professional. And I, I really feel like you look at some of the acquisitions uh, asset managers have done of digital advice platforms or hybrid platforms, it's an amazing way to scale the delivery of advice, to provide the planning, advice, and investment services that a lot of people who are, whether they're mass affluent or or, have less accumulated wealth, they might think they can't afford it when in reality, they really can't. It's a different business model, obviously, than providing one-to-one human advice. But my feeling is you know, an advisor might look at it on the service and say, all right, so there's a conflict here. Who am I competing against? Um, but in the end, yeah, I, I actually think that it'll just kind of raise the tide right, for the profession in general. We'll get more people not only with access to advice, but most importantly, with an appreciation for what advice, whether it's human hybrid or digital, right, can actually do and the problems that real financial advice, real investment management, professional investment management, and professional financial planning can actually do for an individual. And, you know, I would, I tend to believe, Mark, that once, you know, you may, you might start with the digital platform, be fully online, doing it yourself. But at the point, and David and I have talked about this in past podcast at the, at the point where the accumulation phase is successful and you reach whatever the number is for you, then it becomes like real money. And I tend to think, right. you know, you're more likely to want to talk to a human person then, you know, and, and get in a more traditional wealth management relationship at that point. I'm curious what you think about that. I think it's a really good observation. And I think advice at its core is not just about managing money, right? It's managing towards a specific outcome. And the decumulation phase, right? Retirement is probably the most universal, right? Um, sort of need that every individual who goes to an advisor or most individuals who go to an advisor, that that's what they're trying to solve for. Uh, it'll be interesting though, to see, you know, there are some companies that have started to talk about advice as not just a service that will assist with your retirement saving and retirement planning and the development and distribution of retirement income. They're actually talking about how advice aligns with life goals. And you you hear the term living richly, not just dying rich, used more and more these days, which I love, right? Because it personalizes advice. And I think it opens up the eyes and the minds of people who are in their 30s or 40s, right? And might think that wealth management or financial advice is for someone else, or it's just about retirement. And when you're in your 30s, even if you're making good money and you haven't saved a tremendous amount, you're not thinking about retirement, right? You're thinking about buying your first house. You're thinking about, do I, how long do I, do I want to, if I own a house, 
Um, how much, and I have kids, how much do I need to save for college? And once you've done a little bit of that, you start making other decisions. You know, if I wanted to buy a vacation home, how much longer do I need to work or how does that impact where I send my kids to college? So I do think you know, more and more, you know, just like retirement was the one goal that everybody was focused on for the last you know 20 years or so, you're seeing firms that are much more focused on how they can uh, not just help accumulate wealth, but navigate some of the most sophisticated or complex life decisions right that individuals of every age could make outside of retirement and when you start getting into problem solving right and mediating <laughs> right for the most part i think that's when people are really able to understand the value of advice and financial planning yeah i agree let let's move this conversation in, in a different direction and and let's talk about people within the industry. You know, COVID-19 has really changed the way I think most of us are thinking about work. It's shown us that we can be resilient and be very productive working remotely. You know, whether that's our first choice or our last choice, we we have shown that we are we are productive. Uh, what do you think the future of work looks like for RIA firms and their staff? And how do you think uh, clients are expecting to work with their advisors in the future? I think there's so much has changed over the last 18 months. It seems like from a technology standpoint, there's been five or six years of progress made in just a year and a half. Um, and I think that's good for advisors. I think that's good for people who work for RAs. And I think it's good for the clients. I think we're starting to see more and more people get back in the office. But I think more importantly, we're starting to see a much broader recognition of how much can be done when you're not in the office. And I've spoken to so many advisors over the last year and a half who realized that you know what they were doing for a very long time, scheduling monthly or quarterly one-on-ones in an office or at a client's home, wasn't necessarily convenient for them or for their clients. Um, and they've learned to interact on a much more efficient and as-needed basis. Um, so rather than sort of bottling up all your questions, right, for that once a quarter or once every six month meeting, they're starting to actually have much more regular dialogue and conversations with their clients. And I think that that's good for you know the RIA industry. I think that's good for their clients. I also think you know, maybe the biggest thing that will come out of this is the RIA industry, no matter how much money collectively is managed right, by RIAs, and I think it's somewhere north of $11 trillion now, um, it, they, it's a really fragmented and largely regional business. There are really only a handful of RIAs that would be considered national uh, RIA firms. But now with people working remotely with some of the RIA firms having the right technology and the right processes in place, the right workflows, they're able to recruit the best available talent from anywhere in the country. Um, and I don't think that we're at a point where every RA firm, of course, is doing that. But I do think that there are some that are very much saying not everybody needs to be in the office and not everybody needs to be in the same zip code. So what are the right roles, right? What's the right organizational structure that we need to have to support our future growth? And who are the most talented individuals that we can hire, right, to essentially help us get there? And they're taking a much, casting a much broader net. And I think in the process, or you know, the, the thoughtful firms, the most innovative ones, are having some incredible success finding their next generation of talent because of the remote world that so many people have learned to live in now. 
Yeah, I mean, we've we've had some of those RIA firms on the podcast where, you know, even before COVID, they were already, you know, hiring uh, remotely and having, you know, offices in different spots and and not feeling the need to all be together in, in, in one small office. But I think it also has an impact on, you know, hiring, you know, getting to that diversity angle too. You, you have mm-hmm. the opportunity to access a more diverse population if you don't have to find them within your small community. And I think for consumers, you know, you know, we've done a lot of research around DE&I. I mean, it, it opens up uh, more opportunities to find the ideal advisor who not only is really experienced and great as an advisor, but may also have some cultural uh, traits that that you're looking for, looking for a woman, looking for an advisor of color. I, I just think it's a really exciting time. I completely agree. And it also, I think just as the firms as at the top of the RA channel get bigger and more successful, they're not just thinking about, all right, how do we recruit great advisors, right? They are, of course, thinking about that, but they're also thinking about, I need a marketer. Um, I need somebody who's really focused on making sure that we're not only in the media and we have a good PR strategy, but we have a solid brand. We're creating awareness in our market and potentially larger markets now because we can deliver advice from a distance or virtually. Uh, And they're recruiting for positions that they've never had to recruit for before. So I think that is also a great way. We just have more jobs and more needs within the RIA industry for firms to inject new thinking, diversity, and and, and just a a new sort of generation of skill sets into the wealth management industry. Yeah, it's an exciting time. And, you know, I I, I love the fact that we're we're talking about the flexibility. And I'm curious whether you think we'll also begin to see more flexibility in advisory compensation models. Do you think we'll see more flat fee arrangements for advice or subscription models rather than fees based on asset? I mean, how far are we going to push this flexibility angle within our industry? Uh, That's one of the questions that I think is on the top of the minds of a lot of people in the industry. And I I still think obviously the asset-based fee is the dominant way of structuring a fee in the wealth management industry. But as people have more complex needs, as as the clients have more sophisticated needs, that's when you'll start to see the fee structures change a bit. And we know that some firms are obviously charging more money for access for to estate planning services or anything that would be related to you know, trusts and more complex tax issues. And when you do that, you're setting yourself up, obviously, to deliver more value. So I think it's easier to justify moving away from just a flat asset-based fee. I think the challenge you know, with the fee structure, it will change when the... <laughs> The advisor can really articulate you know, the value that he or she is adding above and beyond just investment performance. Um, and I think we're starting to get there. I think people are re- starting to recognize that the asset-based fee works, but it's limited. But I think that there's still a long way to go in proving why you should pay more for a financial plan, for example, or proving you know why you should pay more for maybe not concierge services, but more hands-on and more a la carte services like, you know, would you pay more for retirement income planning, for example, right? In addition to the investment management. So I don't see hourly, I don't see project-based fees all that often now, but I do see some unbundling. And I think for those higher value services, that's where you will see maybe an a la carte 
fee that is added to the asset base fee and the asset base fee is strictly tied to investment management. And do you think, you know, it almost feels to me like if, you know, for looking you, before you were talking about getting more people into the wealth management mindset and, and having them realize the benefits of it. And so for young people that don't have many assets, you know, they probably need the financial plan, you know, as much or more than a lot of people that have a great deal of assets. And so I've been hearing a lot of buzz about subscription models for, you yeah. know, the 20 the something. Yeah, uh, that that is definitely you know you bring up a good point. I'm glad I'm glad you mentioned that. I think for people who are maybe in their early 30s and they're in that you know, builder mode where they're just getting going, you know, they're earning good money, don't have a ton in terms of investable assets, but they don't necessarily need their money managed so much as they need a financial plan. Like I think the subscription fee is definitely the way to go, and I think it actually meets the needs of the younger, the Henrys, right? Who are in that need of financial planning more than anything else. I I think it's the perfect offering for them. So we'll see as they grow, right? And as advice theoretically expands and there are more options available, does that replace the asset base fee at some point? I think it'll take some time, um, but, you know, I still believe that sort of this hybrid, right? Where you're paying potentially a lower asset base fee, but you're paying, more for some of the add-on services um, will be the model for the majority of clients who are working with a financial advisor. Well, we've certainly spun the wheel, as you suggested today, with a lot of different topics. Thank you, Mark. And as our time comes to a close, we always like to ask our guests to leave our listeners with some actionable takeaways. And so as most of our time today was speaking about wealth management trends, I'm hoping we can close on that theme. So Mark, if you had to choose just two key areas, I know this isn't easy, that you think advisors should be thinking about for 2022, what would they be and what can they do proactively to prepare for those trends in the coming months ahead? I think it's a great way to end. And I'll touch on the the talent piece first, which I know we discussed briefly, but if you're thinking about your next stage, uh, your next life cycle, where your growth is going to come from, and you're not already thinking about recruiting individuals who are outside right, of your zip code, right? and you're not thinking about... I was actually just talking with um, Rianca Dorsival, amazing financial advisor in the Maryland area. She describes it as culture 2.0. Um, and I think yeah, that that's a mindset that I would love to see more and more leaders of advisory firms adopt. You know, we've learned a lot over the last 18 months about working remotely, about what people want and value right from their employer. Um, and I think it creates a lot of options and a lot of flexibility within the wealth management industry that didn't exist before. So for the first takeaway, I'd say if you're not thinking about you know, the positions that you need and the positions that you have, I should say, in place already, and where you'll source that next generation of talent from, you really do need to look at your current org chart and then start to build you know, your culture 2.0, that new org chart that aligns with where you see all these growth opportunities that could be in the wealth management market. We know we're in the wealth management market ahead. Um, and the second piece is just on the M&A side of things. One thing I would just say to really any advisor, because we get a lot of questions about, uh, I've never done an acquisition before, or should I sell my business? Is this the right time? Is this the right market? It, this to me is one of the most sort of untold stories in the wealth management space. There are so many firms that are out there that are trying to do acquisitions on their own, or they're trying to sell their business on their own. 
And in theory, right, if you own and run a financial advisory firm, you are a successful small business owner and entrepreneur, and you're really good at giving financial advice. So in theory, you should be able to execute a deal. There are so many dynamics that come into play when you're involved in a transaction, whether you're selling or you're acquiring. I would really encourage anybody who's thinking about taking that kind of step, which requires a lot of time, a large investment of money in many cases, right? And then you have to live together, right? After the deal closes <laughs> to engage the professionals that are out there, investment bankers, some of the consultants that are in the space, and also to do your research, understand you know, what it looks like to sell your business to a certain type of firm, right? And you can, it's still as big as this industry has gotten, it's still a cult culture that relies on peer-to-peer -peer interaction. There are still very large RIAs that are doing study groups on a regular basis. So don't be afraid to pick the phone, reach out to another firm that's been involved in a deal and ask what their experience was like. Do your own research. So I guess just to end on that second point, there's so much momentum and so much attention that gets paid to m a because you can see it, but don't let it be a distraction. If you think it's something that can really solve for a succession issue or something that can really help you, you grow, make sure you do your homework, make sure you're ready to go into it and make sure that you're working with people who understand how to navigate that process in the most appropriate and effective way possible. Mark, that's great. You are such a wealth of information and I always learn so much when I spend time with you. It has been a real delight to have you on the podcast today. Thank you. Wow, thank you both. It was a pleasure getting back together again. I've loved this podcast since you launched it and it's really a privilege to be on here today. So thank you for having me. Thank you, Mark. Well, as one of the premier websites for the investment industry, be sure to visit wealthmanagement.com and also be sure to listen to Mark's new podcast, RIA Edge. If you like this podcast, you may also like the other FlexShares podcast called Funds in Focus. Check it out today and you'll find it wherever you get your podcasts. For myself and Laura Gregg, we want to thank you, our listeners, for joining us on today's episode of The Flexible Advisor. Thank you for listening to the Flexible Advisor podcast. Click the subscribe button below to be notified when new episodes become available. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the guest and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of FlexShares Exchange Traded Funds or Northern Trust. All investments involve risk, including possible loss of principal. Before investing, carefully consider the FlexShares investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. This and other information is in the prospectus and a summary prospectus, copies of which may be obtained by visiting www.flexshares.com. Read the prospectus carefully before you invest. Foresight Fund Services, LLC Distributor. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investing advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding your investment planning. Although we attempt to keep the information complete and current, we do not warrant that the content herein is accurate, complete, or current. We make no commitment to update the content herein. It is your responsibility to verify any information before relying on it. The content of this podcast may include technical inaccuracies. We may make changes in the products and or services described herein at any time. We provide you this information with the understanding that we are not rendering accounting, legal, or tax advice please consult your legal or tax advisor concerning such matters. Mm -hmm.